Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, well, welcome back to our study of Genesis 1-4. through And we finished in the first three episodes kind of the seven-day sequence of creation. And the way Genesis is written, uh, we get to another account of the same creation in Genesis chapter 2 that is structured differently. It has a different focus on it. And this is not unique to Genesis. There's several other passages in the Bible where there will be more than one account Mm -hmm. of the same event with a different focus in mind. I mean, this is generally true of the Gospels. That's a great example. Exactly the same, but Mm -hmm. um, even like Joshua, um, uh, no, excuse me, the Exodus, Exodus 14 and 15. In Exodus 14, you've got the uh, account of the Exodus, and then Exodus 15, you've got the Song of Moses that recounts the same thing, but kind of in poetic terms as a different focus. Uh, I'm yeah. thinking of Judges 4 and 5 with the Song of Barak. And oh, okay, Deborah, excellent. That yeah. one. Yeah. I think another good example is uh, Paul's conversion and the book of Acts. I mean, mm-hmm. there's the initial telling of it, which is just the historical nature of Paul's conversion. But then he retells it two other times in the book of Acts as he's on stand um, and as he's you know giving a defense of his faith. And so it, it tells it in kind of similar way, but with a different focus in mind. So the Bible does that a lot. It doesn't create any problems for us. So we shouldn't feel nervous about that or anything like that. Yeah. So let's read uh, Genesis 2. So we've finished the seven-day account, and now Genesis 2, verse 4, would have been the better chapter break, Uh, and it's going to start a new section. There's a clear break in the text. So I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Genesis 2, we'll read verses 4 through 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So in verse 4, you can hear the retelling, the the way it starts off. 
when it says this is the account of the heavens and of the earth. That's why Stephen said uh, this might be a, a good chapter break here. This one, mine says these are the generations. Oh, which is actually really cool because there's uh, a fancy Greek word for that called, or uh, not Greek word, excuse me, um, phrase that describes that called toledots, which are really cool. And you're going to see them a lot further and further. And I see Stephen had this noted in the notes here. But uh, in chapter 5 and verse 1 will be the next one where it will say, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Uh, chapter 6 and verse 9, these are the records of the generations of Noah, and so forth and so on. And so it's following the family lineage of these particular men. But what's really cool is the first one that, that there is isn't necessarily about an individual person like Noah or Adam. But it's about God and the accounts, the generations of the heavens and of the earth. So that's really cool to see. Yeah. So with this break in the text, what we're going to have is it kind of it's rewinding. And we're going to have another account of the same creation that gives a different point of emphasis. There's going to be a real zooming in on humanity with man and woman. And now the garden is going to be talked about here. There's no mention of the Garden of Eden in the Genesis 1 and the first part of chapter 2. But now we're going to have uh, this focus. And so, again, you have the Lord creating here. Uh, he made the heavens and the earth. And what's going to be interesting is at the beginning it appears that there was not rain yet um, yeah. because there's no man to work the ground uh, one of the things we're going to see in this account is that man is created in part to work the garden to take care of it to keep it we'll talk more about that in a minute but it talks about a mist going up from the ground and watering the face of the ground so there's still moisture but it's not really until Genesis 6 and the flood that we're going to see rain really happening. Um, so this is an interesting thing here. Yeah, and if that's the case, it's cool to think about God going to Noah and saying, hey, by the way, there's going to be this great flood. You know, it's going to rain. Um, you know, it's, it, it's going to flood the entire world. And there's a good chance Noah hadn't even seen rain. But yet he still trusts God. Super cool little thing. Mm -hmm. That's right. And, and so um, in Genesis 1, it talked about focusing on that mankind, humans, were made in God's image. But it didn't really say how God created them. But in Genesis 2, it gives us a little more detail as to the order and purpose of the creation of humanity. In verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And so this concept of man being made from dust, made from the earth, is going to be very interesting. And we'll see this referenced, again, in the book of Genesis, a lot of the patterns that we're going to see through the rest of the Bible are being set up here. And dust is going to be one of these things you hear a lot more from. Which is really cool because as we read through the first six days back in chapter 1, it just will say, like back in chapter 1, verse 25, God made the beasts of the earth after their kind. It doesn't get into what components they had that God made them with. And in verse 26 of chapter 1, it says, Let us make man in our image. But now it's getting into the specifics of how man was made and how that makes him different from the rest of the animals. And so the first thing that Stephen pointed out is that he was formed from the dust of the ground. The second thing that's mentioned is that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and then the man became a living being. That is not said of the rest of creation. 
This is a special relationship, start of a relationship that we see God has with mankind and not with the rest of his creatures. And there's just this really cool picture of God breathing into the man life. So this idea is carried throughout a lot of scripture whenever you think about God's spirit producing life within his people. This is kind of a side note, but I heard an interesting point made about this when we're talking about the New Testament, that uh, James 2 says, the body without the spirit is dead. And so faith without works is dead. But that analogy of the body without the spirit is kind of true of Adam. He first forms the man's body of the dust of the ground, but he's not alive until God puts his breath, his spirit into man, and then he becomes alive. It's also interesting that in Ephesians chapter 4, the first two ones that are mentioned, uh, there is one body and one spirit <clears throat> Yeah, right there. And it's kind of interesting. There's one body, one church, a group of God's people, but we do not live the way God wants us to live until we have his spirit living in us. And so I think that's kind of a cool connection here to the first man. Again, God is setting up. He could have done this a million different ways. But he chooses to first form the body of dust and then breathe his breath, his spirit, into man, and he becomes a living creature. And if you're ever interested to see another theme in the Bible with that, go read Ezekiel 37 with the Valley of Dry Bones. Mm -hmm. It's representative of Israel, Israel being spiritually dead, but first the bones come together, they rattle together, then the flesh and the sinews. But after they've all come together, then the spirit of God gets breathed into it. It's really fascinating stuff throughout scripture. That's right. So in verse 8, it says that God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And so now not only God has made man, but now, of course, he is putting man in his place, which is super cool to see because just like God placed the stars where they go, God is placing man right there in the garden. And one cool thing to note here is that the word Eden means pleasure or delight and so as god is creating a place for mankind again he could have done this so many different ways but he creates a beautiful place uh, that's designed to um, be a, a delight to mankind uh, he wants them to enjoy his world uh, to enjoy this creation and so he puts man in a garden which i think it's kind of still kind of cool like even today like there's just something about being out in nature that is like ah this is like what we were supposed to do. Yeah, and it's refreshing. And it kind of, you can have a bad day, but go out into nature and be rebuilt. And verse 9, this just illustrates it further, what Stephen was saying. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. And I think that's something I sometimes forget, Stephen. You know, that we like, we enjoy the food that comes from trees, but there's also a beauty that God gave the trees that you're getting the produce from. And so it's pleasant to the eye as well as it is pleasant to the mouth. Uh, so God really blesses his creatures. That's right. And this is where in the text we are introduced to the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, so it's interesting that in addition to the trees giving uh they're beautiful to look at and they're good to eat there are two trees in particular that are not just for food um, there's one that is actually a source of life uh, we'll find out later that if we eat from this tree you'll live forever and the other tree is interestingly going to be the one 
no-no in the garden. Uh, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so what's going to be interesting is as God is creating this perfect world, he does put in a test to the world. Um, in just a minute, we're going to see more about the one thing that they're told not to eat. Now, it's, when it's introduced, we're not told that they're not going to eat from it until just a minute. But um, we'll just note that, that one of the ways that God works is that he allows his creation, his people, to be tested. And that's going to come up from the very beginning uh, of the Bible story here. So flowing out of the Garden of Eden is a river, and the river divides into four rivers. The first one is called Pishon uh, in verse 11. It flows around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. Um, and the gold of that land is good, it tells us in verse 12. The delium and the onyx stone are there. Gold is obviously, even now, a super hot commodity. I mean, uh, we're supposedly, you know, based off of the gold standard here and still true of other economies. But that originates all the way out here from this one river that we're talking about. And it's also interesting to just see that these precious earth metals that are being talked about have their place later in the priestly garments in Exodus, the 28th chapter. Mm -hmm. So God tells us where these things originate from, and now they have their place in the priestly garments as well. Yeah, there's actually, uh, when you get into the details of the tabernacle later on, there is a ton of connections to the Garden of Eden. Um, that uh, in some ways the tabernacle was designed kind of as a little miniature Garden of Eden in terms of its symbolism. And a lot of things that are overlaid with gold. Mm-hmm. Yep. And even like the cherubim on the veil, they're like guarding the way to God. I mean, I'm skip we're skipping ahead in Genesis 3 here, but yeah. when they're exiled from the garden, there's a cherubim guarding the way, and that's what's on the veil. Uh, and so there's a lot of interesting parallels. We won't get into all those right now. But again, Genesis is setting up the patterns that we'll see through the rest of Scripture. And so um, we've got these rivers uh, that divide out. And then the Lord takes the man. And in verse 15, he puts him in the garden to do two things, to work it and keep it. And these are two interesting concepts here. Um, we won't get into a deep dive on these Hebrew words and where they come up, but it is just interesting to think about. God created the first man to have work to do, to have a project to do. And what's going to happen later with the curses in Genesis 3 is the man's work is going to be affected by the curse. He's going to have to toil, yes. and it's going to be hard to get food from the ground. But originally... Work is a blessing. In the paradise of Eden, man is given work to do, but it wasn't toil. It was enjoyable, creative work. Yes, and I think another helpful distinction, the way I've heard it put before, I don't know if anyone has ever bought a home and you get out to the garden that the previous homeowners had, and it's just overgrown, and there's a bunch of weeds in it, and you kind of inherit a broken garden that you now have to put a lot of labor and toil into to try and fix up and, and to revitalize. Well, that is not the case for Adam whatsoever. He is put into the garden not to fix anything, but to maintain what God already made. And I think that's an important distinction to see because it was pleasant for Adam to get to do that. The toil that we're going to be talking about in chapter 3 is a little bit different, like Stephen already said. 
And so Adam's job is to keep the things that would make the garden bad out, to keep God's garden holy. That's his responsibility. But there is also a command given to Adam in his work in the garden in verse 16. He's told from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. So on the front end of this, that's really cool, right? Hey, any tree you want to eat from, you may. But of course, verse 17 says, there's one you have to stay away from. The first no-no, like Stephen was talking about. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from it. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So this is really the first command that is given in the Bible. And well, Adam, we're told to be fruitful and multiply. Earlier. That is true. Yes, that is helpful. But this is, I guess, the first like no-no Negative. command. That's right, right, right. right. Hey, the like, first prohibition. Exact prohibition. Thank you. That's a better way to put that. And so Adam, I would hope, would be appreciative of, okay, well, there is this one thing that I have to avoid, but there's a whole bunch of other things that God has given me. And, of course, we'll see Satan use that to his advantage in next week's episode in chapter 3. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting here is when we think about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Again, there's a lot of ideas about what exactly this was. The text doesn't really explain all of that, so we're left to kind of piece it together. But what it seems is being talked about here is, is of course, knowing good and evil in an intellectual sense is a good thing. There's a sense in which God is telling them good and evil by saying, okay, tree of life, good. Tree of knowledge of good and evil, bad. Um, But there's a sense in which God wants us to know the difference between good and evil. But I wonder if the knowledge here is more like the experience of both good and evil. Man is experiencing good in the garden because God has made it good. And that's the chorus in chapter 1, right? And God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. And, of course, when God says it's good, it really is good. But what mankind is going to be tempted to do through the rest of the Bible story down to today is he's going to be tempted to take for himself saying, no, I know what's good and bad. I get to decide. And that's going to be the temptation that we'll talk about on the next podcast is that the serpent tries to get Eve to think, ah, is that really evil? Is that really bad? You can take the knowledge of good and evil for yourself. And now you get to kind of call the shots and decide for your own, from your own perspective, you know, what's good and evil. And of course, when we do that, we make a total mess of things. Um, but that may be the idea of like the knowledge of good and evil is really deciding for ourselves that I know what's good and evil. Um, and so God says, don't eat from that tree. Don't go down that path. And he gives the first consequence. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And I don't know everything that Adam and Eve understood about death at this point. Uh, to my knowledge, nothing had died yet. Um, but I think they knew enough because when the serpent comes to Eve in the next chapter, she's going to repeat and say, hey, we know that if we eat that, we're going to die. Um, but they knew enough to know that's that's bad. We don't want that to happen. And uh, we know enough to obey God. God gives Adam and Eve everything they need to live in his world in a way that pleases him and honors him. And uh, they weren't left in the dark about anything that they needed to know. That's exactly right, Stephen. And it's a it's a thing we face today as well. Will we trust God's word even when we don't understand everything about it? So for instance, you made the point that they might not have even understood everything about death, but are they going to trust what God said 
believe that it's true, and then make choices that reflect their trust in God. We're faced with the same thing. I read things in the New Testament all the time that are challenging for me that I don't always understand. But if I trust the words of God, then I will obey him even when I don't always understand. Mm -hmm. That's right. So this brings us to verses 18 through 25. We'll go ahead and read this. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is an amazing text, and uh, we, we can't do justice to it in one podcast episode, but there are so many things that are introduced here that, again, are going to run through the rest of the Bible. Um, this is the first time that God says, not good. And that's kind of fascinating because sin is not in the world yet. God has not made any mistakes, of course. I do not think this is God, oh, I forgot to create a woman. <laughs> um but this is, uh, God did this on purpose. And there are times where, again, we'll see this later in the Bible story, that God chooses to do things in such a way that he creates something that is not complete, but not because he did that on, on accident. We don't, again, the text does not tell us why God did it this way. But I even think about, like, the Old Testament itself, like, Jesus was needed to complete atonement and forgiveness of sins. But God still gave the Old Testament with the animal sacrifices, knowing that they did not forgive sin in the way that Jesus would. And yet he let that be an incomplete system for a long time. And then he brought Jesus and said, okay, that's done and fulfilled and now it's complete. Adam was by himself for some amount of time. And God says it's not good for him to be alone. But he let him experience that. And I suspect maybe for the purpose of highlighting how good it would be when he was no longer alone. Right. And the physical body of Adam was complete. He was able to function as a human being, but God makes Adam's body incomplete to then make Eve, which then makes him complete. It's just the whole thing is very mind-boggling the way that God does it. And I really love the sequence of these events. As soon as God gives a command to Adam, he then gives him a helper. Mm -hmm. which is really important for us to realize that we need each other. We need other helpers as we strive to work in God's vineyard, in God's garden, and strive to obey him and follow his commands. I also just love the word help there. Uh, when someone comes up to you and says, I need help, they're, they're saying something to you. They're saying, I'm lacking. And man was lacking in something, and God created the solution for that. And Whenever you're asking someone for help, it doesn't mean they're in some way beneath you or anything like that. But there is a, 
an equality that comes with this kind of help. So it's really cool to see that although Eve is the perfect complement to man, she is, as we've emphasized back in chapter one, she is equally valued in the eyes of the creator, uh, God, um, man and woman both equally. But their roles will be different. And that's something we need to understand. Just because roles look different does not mean God values people differently. Mm-hmm. That's right. So before he forms Eve, he first kind of brings Adam all the other potential helpers. Uh, he takes all of the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and brings them to the man. And here's what's interesting. Up to this point in the story, God has been naming everything. He has said, okay, that's the earth, that's the sky, that's the sea. You know, here's these different things. Here's day and night. Um, but now he allows the man to take part in the naming of something. And I think that's significant because when you give something a name, there's kind of this sense of ownership. They're like, okay, I have like taken this thing on. I've named it. It's mine. I mean, I- I remember growing up when stray dogs or stray cats would come up on the property. You know, mom and dad would always say, "Well, don't name it because yeah, you know, you'll get like, attached to it." Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's but right. I think you're right. I think there is a sense in which there's ownership and responsibility that comes when you give something a name and you choose the name for it. Yeah, and so he names every living creature. Um, so he's wanting man to exercise dominion over creation, and part of that is he's naming the animals. And uh, he gives names to the livestock, the birds, the beasts of the field. But it says at the end of verse 20, But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the animals are good. It's not that God messed up. Oh, man, I forgot to create an animal. That would be the right. No, he is letting Adam highlight of all that has been made. I do not currently have a helper that is the right kind of helper Mm -hmm. for the work that God's given me to do. And so... After he lets Adam see his need, he causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he sleeps, it's like the first surgery, right? Yeah. He puts him under and uh, takes one of his ribs, closes up the place with flesh, and he forms the rib from the man into a woman, brings her to the man. So he wakes up, and uh, I wonder if he still thinks he's dreaming. (laughs) Wow. He sings this song, basically. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man this is a beautiful poem this woman completes him uh, gives him another human being to be on the earth with of course this is most true in marriage but i'll just say that the fact that man it's not good for man to be alone this applies to friendship and all sorts of other uh, relationships Um, it's just not good for us to be by ourselves yeah we need other human beings and so he's grateful to God. Um, and there's a little bit of wordplay here. Uh, my understanding is that the Hebrew word for woman is like isha, and the word for man is ish. And so just like our English words man and woe man, um, you've got ish and isha, which again, she's not actually named Eve until after the fall, which is going to be kind of interesting. We'll talk about that in a future episode. But um, right now he just calls her woman (laughs) because she was taken out of man and it's cool someone once pointed out to me that essentially what he's doing is he's giving her his name although it sounds just a little bit different like Stephen just demonstrated for us but it's a tradition we still follow today in some circles you know my wife when she got married she 
to me, she dropped the maiden name and she became Rebecca Byers. And there is a, a sense in which now we are one flesh. Or we, we are one flesh. And so we still are following these very Bible basic principles today in our marriages, or at least we should be. Yeah. So um, in verse 24, maybe the most famous verse uh, here, it gets read a lot for rightfully so. Uh, Therefore a man, so this, by the way, is kind of like Moses is writing, narrating this. Um, he's been telling about the creation, but now he gives kind of a command that's bigger than the narrative here. Um, because of this creation, this way that God has created man and woman, he now says from this, and Jesus will quote this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Um, so it's really fascinating to think about what's going on here. Um, this is the origins of marriage, but now Moses is also giving some instruction. Like This is why marriage is the way that it is. This is told before there's any fathers or mothers in the world. Mm -hmm. There's just two people. And uh, there will be children later on, but uh, there's no father-mother relationship. But he's like, okay, I'm setting this up because there's a future lineage that's going to happen. And this is part of God's perfect plan for the family, for marriage, mm -hmm. and for the continuation of the human species. And when Jesus quoted this, it's in Matthew, the 19th chapter, when some people were asking Jesus about divorce, he will go back to these basic principles and one minor side point to make is that Jesus did not take Adam and Eve to be allegorical people who were fake or just, you know, for some some made-up story for the sake of, um, you know, some legendary story. Jesus took these as real people, so we should as well. But it's also important to point out that when Jesus quotes this passage, he talks about it being from God. Moses definitely penned this. I think this is him saying, and this is why this is the case. But at the same time, we are looking at the words of God. Uh, this is God's intention for marriage from the very beginning, and it's carried throughout all of the old law into the New Testament as well. And so we as Christians should have a very high view of marriage, and we should uphold that for ourselves and for other people as well. And there are several other passages we could go to to emphasize this. Um, Matthew 19 would be a good start. Mark 10 is another. Romans 7, 1 through 3, and other places as well. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. A lot of good passages on that front. Yes, the, the, the New Testament will unpack this verse in different ways and make some different uh, points from it. It's very interesting. But one of the interesting things is as this second account of creation comes to an end it says and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed and of course everyone later on reading this is like whoa that, that's different but what's interesting about this is there's no sin in the world yet there's no shame there's nothing to be ashamed of god created man and woman in the way that they were without clothing and they were together and it's perfect it's paradise like this is the high point of scripture until the Jesus comes and then there's a promise of getting back to uh, the way that God wants things to be in the future. But as we think about man and woman here, it it's just so powerful to think about a world without sin. It, it's almost impossible for us to imagine a world without sin because we have only ever lived in a world where there's been sin and brokenness and things have not been as they should be. 
But as Genesis 2 draws to a close, we're left with just seeing the goodness of God. When God's world is obeying him and functioning as he created it to function, nothing is lacking. There's no shame. Uh, There's no problems in the relationships. There's no problems between mankind and creation. Uh, Everything is beautiful. And uh, we just need to remember that that's the way things started. And we are the ones, not God, who have just made a total mess of the goodness of God's creation. And so we'll start next week uh, getting into the fall and and what went wrong and Mm -hmm. brought us to where we are now. But uh, we never need to forget where this all started in the Garden of Eden um, because that ideal is going to carry us forward into the Bible. And really, what's interesting is we're going to, the Bible is going to end in a garden looking forward to man and God being back in a right relationship again. Yeah, amen. That's exactly right. Our, our purpose is to glorify God. I hope that's what we're seeing in chapters 1 and 2. And so let's do everything we can to strive to glorify God. So Lord willing, like Stephen said, we're going to look into chapter 3 next week. Uh, this is a good chapter break, in my opinion. Yes. And so uh, every, everything is perfect for now. We'll take a look at how that changes in chapter 3 next week, Lord willing. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, uh, please subscribe, leave us a rating or a review so we can reach more people. Um, If you're interested in studying the Bible with us, we would love to connect with you. Please reach out to us, 717-585-0949, or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information on group studies and worship, check us out at capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.